This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 108 of the De Facto Leaders podcast. In this episode, I am excited to have special guest Meg Morgan, who is a clinical assistant professor from the University of New Hampshire, who specializes in multilingual evaluations. I actually found Meg because she did a fantastic presentation for speechpathology.com on multilingual evaluations. So I wanted her to come on the show and share it with my audience and really dive into some of these topics further because it relates to a lot of questions I get from clinicians about how to do good evaluations, especially when it comes to language, especially when we are evaluating things that are very abstract and difficult to measure and that are also very time consuming to look at. So in this conversation, we start off by talking about some common misconceptions when it comes to understanding multilingualism, bilingualism, some of the terms that are thrown out there like a heritage language versus a native language and how we should think about that and how we should be culturally sensitive while we're doing our evaluations, especially if you are someone who does not speak the heritage language of the person you're evaluating. We also talked about language proficiency and how a lot of times when people think about bilingualism, they think of it very simply. So here's your language that's more dominant and here's the language that you're learning and it's 
this static thing. So we talk about why that's not the case, why it can be so much more fluid, and what to actually do about that when you're considering whether or not someone should get services. And then finally, we get into some specific evaluation procedures. So this is definitely relevant for you if you're a speech pathologist, psychologist, or anybody else who is doing evaluations. So one of the things that comes up a lot, one of the questions that I get is, how do I assess language skills? How do I write my report? What tools should I use? And most importantly, what test should I use? And so in this conversation, we talk about how an evaluation really isn't about the test, it's about the whole process. And so she gets into some recommendations about how we can do that, how we can make it objective and clear and make a good case for whatever it is we think and how we can get the information that we need to make good decisions about service delivery. Before we get going, I wanted to share a couple resources that you can get that will give you more information about language and also executive functioning. I'm mentioning my ultimate guide to sentence structure because in this episode, we talk a lot about specific language patterns and language skills that you can look for. And one of the most impactful skills that you can address during the school age years is syntax. And in order to do that effectively, in order to be able to collect data about specific skills, in order to be able to assess things in therapy, you need to know what skills are relevant. So I walk through that in the ultimate guide to sentence structure. So to get more information about that guide, you're gonna to wanna to go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure, and you'll be able to sign up for a free copy. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. I also wanted to mention my executive functioning implementation guide. So if you are working on a school team, whether you are a therapist or a teacher, if you're thinking about generalization and really working together as a team to support kids in a way that proactively supports their social skills, their mental health, and really supports generalization of any skills that you're working on in therapy, whether it be language or whether it be some other skill, you're going to wanna to think about executive functioning. This is really the skill that is the glue that holds everything else together. Now, of course, in this interview, we talk a lot about how we need to be very mindful of our time when we're doing evaluations and things like that. And if you are a practitioner, especially if you're in the schools, you know that you have limited direct time with your students. So when it comes to addressing things like executive functioning, it's really important that everybody who interacts with kids across the day knows how to support it. It can't just be something that you do in your therapy sessions. That's why we need to understand everyone's role in the process and why it's so important. So, that's what I walk through in this implementation guide. I give you the high level view of what everyone's role is and how we can start supporting this in the schools. So to get more information about how you can get your copy of the executive functioning implementation guide, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash efschools. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash efschools. Now, please enjoy this interview with speech-language pathologist Meg Morgan.
So today I am joined by Meg Morgan from the University of New Hampshire. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd get started off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I'm a bilingual Spanish-English bilingual speech-language pathologist. Um, I did a bilingual program. They used to call it bilingual program. Now they call it a multilingual, multicultural program at Arizona State University. Um, And then I worked in Arizona for a few years as a, a bilingual speech pathologist in the schools. And then we moved to Texas and I worked for bilinguistics and another private practice doing more bilingual speech language pathology. And then we moved to New Hampshire and there were not as many bilingual children in New Hampshire, not as much diversity. Um, So I started working for the university actually and training um, speech language pathologists who don't speak other languages on how to work with multilingual and multicultural populations. And that's where I am now. Great. And that is how I found you because you have a fantastic presentation on speechpathology.com on multilingual evaluations. So so yeah, I thought we would get into it today. And and as we were, I know we were chatting before we hit record that obviously we are talking about speech and language evaluations, but this is really important information for anybody on an IEP team, any kind of multidisciplinary team, or you know, other people that are doing evals, psychologists, or anybody who's involved in that referral process. Because I know that when I, you know, when I worked in the schools, a lot of times people would it was just hard to explain the difference between, you know, language differences and language disorders and then how you'd navigate the whole process and just helping people understand whether you're the one evaluating or not, helping people understand all of these different concepts. So I think it'll be helpful for a lot of different people, not just the people who are actually doing the evaluations, which is what we're going to talk about today. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is the the, the whole idea of that Obviously, if you're bilingual and you are able to evaluate and do do different evaluations in both of the languages that you speak, that is that's one thing. But a lot of times, a speech pathologist will get a referral, and the the student will speak a language that they don't speak. So, how often does that happen? So, it's actually really common, um, and I think also right now what we're facing, especially in school districts, is there are shortages. So even if you did have access before to a bilingual speech pathologist or a bilingual psychologist, it may be that you don't anymore because of shortages. And so um, it's a huge issue facing not only speech language pathologists, as you said, but the whole school team, right? What do we do when we don't speak the language? Um, there are also, you might get a referral for uh, an indigenous language that you're not able to get a lot of information about. Um, And so there are a lot of questions that people have about what do I do? How do I do that? And actually a lot of people freeze, don't they? Like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And and I mean, I, I, I thought about it where I took Spanish in high school and didn't really stick with it. I mean, I do do Duolingo now, but of course that gives you background, but you can't really speak it unless you actually go and try to speak it. But then there's all these different dialects. And so I've even thought, even if I was bilingual and I know one Spanish dialect, that's really not going to prepare me for all of these different dialects within that language or 
there's other languages besides Spanish that you might have to, that you might encounter. So you really have to have a good process and know that you're going to be getting referrals or that you might get a referral for a language that you don't speak. Right, exactly. And that's, I mean, it, it's it's really interesting because I learned Spain, Spanish. I lived in Spain and then I moved to the Southwest and a lot of the things that I was saying, the kids were like, students were like, I have no idea what you're talking about um, because I was speaking a different dialect. So it is, you're right. There's so many different dialects of Spanish. And then also we have all of these different languages. And my first year out, one of my very first evaluations was a Farsi evaluation. And I luckily had had this training and background in a bilingual program, um, but I still didn't feel prepared for a Farsi evaluation. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I could see how that would just be so, so um, overwhelming, I guess. (laughs) Okay. So I had a question that I thought was really interesting when you are working with a child who speaks multiple languages or English isn't their their first language, there were some terms that you used that were different than what I've heard. So the whole concept of heritage, native, dominant, can you explain what all those terms mean? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. So just I, I, as you probably know, terminology changes over time. And, and recently we've been shifting towards this idea of in the United States using heritage language instead of native language or dominant language. And that is actually because the the term dominant language, it might not be their dominant language, right? Mm -hmm. Or it might not be their native language because maybe they were born here. So heritage language really just refers to the fact that it is a language that they are learning and they are speaking because of their heritage. And it doesn't differentiate that they came from another country, they were born in another country. It sort of is just an equalizer where it just mm-hmm. says that there's another language that's happening in this family. Okay. And so that's typically what, so if somebody were speaking Spanish because they moved from Mexico and that's the language that they're family is speaking and then they're in an English speaking school system and you have to do an evaluation to figure out, you know, is there, you know, is there a language disorder? The heritage language would be Spanish because that's what they're speaking in their family. Right. It's related to their family and it's related to their heritage and they may have more than one heritage language, right? So they may speak a Spanish Um, they may speak Spanish at home and also indigenous and indigenous language. And so both of those are their heritage languages um, because their language is spoken at home. Do you see that a lot where kids will have multiple heritage languages? Yes, (laughs) it does. I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but it is something that you should be thinking about. So, um, I mean, they're, we can talk about intersectionality, right, where uh, everyone is living in a different intersection of their lives. And there are some people, right, who are speaking multiple languages at home, um, in, especially with Spanish speakers, right? We have people who are migrating from um, Central America who yeah. are at the intersection of being indigenous and also needing to speak Spanish because that's um, that's the language that they're using. And in the country, in the country that they're living in, right? And so now they're speaking English here, so they're trilingual. But we also see that um, with European families, maybe they speak other languages yeah. at home, or you might see that 
where you have one parent who speaks one language, one parent who speaks the other language, and neither of those languages are English. So then you get multiple languages at home because of that too. So there are lots of different things that could be going on. Is that because, so if we're going to use um, Central or South America, for example, I mean, me being a person who's never been to South America, I think, you know, um, Spanish and Portuguese, but the other countries have different dialects and indigenous indigenous languages, don't they? Where it's it's yes. not. I mean, you would be speaking Span the Spanish that you learned, and if you went to, um, let me think, like Bolivia or something, it it would be not the same language that they speak in that country. Yeah, so I would I I would tell you that it's sort of like going to England, right? Where they're they're speaking the same language, but it's yeah. just a different dialect. Where there are a lot of yeah. words that are different. And actually, speaking of indigenous uh, influence, what we see is sometimes in Central and South America, you may have words that have more indigenous influence. So that's mm-hmm. why the words might be different because they're influenced by the indigenous groups that are living there in that country. So there there might be some influence on some of the words. Uh, that may be drastically different than the words that they might be using in Spain because they're using the indigenous word or it's a, it is the root of the word that they're using. Mm, Okay. Yeah. I think that it's it's interesting because I know that that happens a lot in Europe because, you know, again, you're so, it's so, you're so close to other places where they speak a different languages versus the United States where yes, we have different accents and dialects, but you know, it's primarily English speaking. So yeah, that's right. it's fascinating to me how like we went to Europe this last year and this waiter is like speaking French to his coworkers and then speaking in Italian to the table next to us and then speaking English to us. And it's like, oh, my, like I, I can barely get through a sentence or a couple <laughs> of sentences in Spanish. <laughs> it's it's just, you know, it's fascinating. I think that that's why a lot of times people don't realize how just how good it is neurologically to be able to speak multiple languages, like just the the mental flexibility that comes with it. It does actually. Yeah. There are definitely advantages to, to being bilingual and, or multilingual, we should say, but I think in the United States, it's not, it's not typical, right? Like you are describing that you're going somewhere else and you see that someone is speaking lots of other languages. But what's really interesting is that in the United States, it tends to be, whoa, you speak multiple languages. It's just, it it isn't, and I will say that it's because it's not encouraged here in the United States. We have a system where multilingualism is not encouraged. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, in other countries where it's, if English isn't the, um, isn't the, the, the language that they still take English and they st- can still speak English. A lot of them can speak really good English. And right now, yeah. and I actually are here in the United States. What's very interesting is that our English learning programs, the goal of the program is to learn English and to, to not to foster this, the heritage language. Right. So we're saying go forward with English and, and it's okay if you keep the other language along the way, but really the goal is English. We need to learn English. Right. So in the United States, the way that our education system works is that we're, we're pushing the English and it, and we're kind of like, okay, it's okay if you keep the other language, but then sometimes you hear people saying, actually, no, don't keep the other language, <laughs> get rid of the other language too, which is something that is a, a myth. And we're trying to get rid of that myth, but it happens all the time where you have principals or 
um, teachers or even speech pathologists saying, please don't speak that language. Um, don't speak your heritage language. And it's, ugh, it's, it's a terrible thing to say um, for lots of different reasons. Um, I mean, how could that look? So obviously there's one thing where it's, you're directly telling someone to only speak English. Obviously that has significant implications. That's obviously not good versus just not directly saying it, but not really encouraging it and fostering it or that that is a little bit more passive, but still not necessarily beneficial. What's, I mean, what's being done in other countries and what, what would be the solution to that to really be able to support both of them? Well, I think really what happens here is that we don't really truly have bilingual education in a lot of different states. Some states do, right? But even the name is English as a second language classes, right? We we call it English classes, even when we have people who speak other languages, because the ultimate goal is English, and then we yeah. drop the other language. As soon as they mm-hmm. learn English, that's over, it gets dissolved, and we move on. So it's almost like the ultimate goal is you get to this point of learning English, and then let's forget about the other language versus in other countries is fostered all throughout their education. And the goal is bilingualism, multilingualism, and not this is the one path towards English. And hopefully you you learn English. That's what we want you to do. What are they actually doing? I'm just curious. I mean, how does that actually look from an implementation standpoint of, of, um, you know, fostering both languages? Like what activities do they do in other countries? Um, I actually, I don't know really, but um, it it is a lot of times I will say what is happening is what happens sometimes in some of our states in the United States that do have bilingual education, which is you're taking all of your classes, all of your um, regular academic classes in both languages. So you're getting the content in both languages, or maybe you take history in English uh, so that you're getting your content level in English versus here a lot of times with ESL, English as a second language, it's called lots of different things in lots of states, lots of different states. But um, the idea with that is you go into this little classroom and you learn English or they come into your classroom and they're teaching you English, but you're not getting the content in your heritage language like you would be in um yeah in a in a bilingual program yeah or a multiple program i've heard of so um i was listening to a podcast where they were talking about a program for french and they were doing it was a whole after school program where all they did was speak french and then they would put on plays and so to me that that seems like it would be a little bit more inclusive because you're you're not just sitting there in a class you're actually doing something that involves speaking another language. I would think that something like that would be more inclusive. I think it was um, near the border. So it was, there were a lot of people who, you know, were Canadian. (laughs) So maybe that was because maybe there was that influence, but maybe that's why there was a little bit more push for that. Yeah. Well, what you're sort of onto something here, because basically what you are talking about is getting 
vocabulary and language for, through multiple different activities, right? Yeah. And so when you sit in a classroom and you say, this is a pen, this is a cup, <laughs> it's not yeah. quite the same as learning about something else in another language and getting the vocabulary and the experience in that other language. And that's the difference really between bilingual education and just learning the essentials of a language like you would in a in a language classroom. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like we would need to give people more real life experiences and actually provide those opportunities more proactively in order to be fully, fully fostering it versus just saying, and eh, do it if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Just it's optional. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. So I want to, there was something that you brought up, which I think is sort of a thing that people where we, we oversimplify it a little bit where it's, um, the idea of the simple ver- view versus the realistic view and how that works. And of course, I think that professionals, so especially speech pathologists know, you know, people will sometimes ask me, like when I was in the school, I remember one of my students, her her mother was like, well, I speak German and I speak German with her. Is that going to be harmful? And I was like, no, that's awesome. Of course, do that. And so people ask that in their, these parenting groups. And so, of course, parenting groups, there's a lot of very bad information floating around. I think at least professionals would know that that something like that is going to be beneficial. It's not going to be harmful. You're going to have, you know, bridging from one language to another when you're speaking multiple languages. No, like no qualified speech pathologist is going to say it's going to be harmful for you to speak another language to your child in your home. But I think that's where people get stuck is this whole idea of here's this language and here's your proficiency and here's this language and here's your proficiency. Like it's this sort of um, rigid thing, but it's not really like that. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think that we all learn this very simple view of bilingualism where it's almost like silos, right? So here are my Spanish language skills over here in this silo. Sometimes we'll even attach a score to it, like a, a WIDA score, which is like the national test about of um, language proficiency. Here's your language proficiency in Spanish. And then here's your language proficiency in English, how much you understand, how much you're speaking in English. Um, and they sort of live in these two little silos. And the way that we explain it in, in, um, in speech pathology is that you, if both of those languages um, are below normal limits, then that is a language disorder. Mm-hmm. However, one thing that I like to talk about is that it's really just, it's not that simple because what happens is that the two languages don't live in silos. They don't live in their happy little um places, Spanish over here, English over here. They actually interact quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so Spanish influences English and English influences Spanish. Um, And so you get this um, basically like uh, this twisting is what it's a visual that I created. Yeah, it was really good. (laughs) Mixing of the two. I hate to use the word mixing because that kind of beats something else. It's just that the two influence each other. And I will give examples of of myself and things that happen with me. So I'm a heritage speaker of English. I grew up speaking English and learned Spanish um, later on in life. However, I spoke Spanish all day for my job. And I can see even now that 
it influences my English, which you would probably say like, that's, that's crazy. It influences my spelling um, because I will spell things like I should in Spanish or in English and vice versa. Um, and it influences sometimes the things that I say. So I, um, in an IEP meeting, will sometimes say the reimbursement of Medicaid and other people yeah. will say to me, why don't you just say Medicaid reimbursement? And I'll say, oh, because I'm translating from Spanish, obviously, in my brain as I'm talking to you. So they do influence each other, which is what makes it much more complicated when we try to measure them. We can't just assign a number to each one and have them live in their little silos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I could see how when you're thinking about functionality and you're thinking about processing and comprehension, how this would be so important because I am, you know, one of my biggest areas that I teach about with language processing and helping kids to have better writing quality and better reading comprehension. I focus so much on syntax because if kids have a language disorder, even if they're just, you know, um, monolingual, if you don't understand sentence structure, it is really hard for you to process. And I noticed that I feel like I have so much more empathy what now that I'm trying to learn Spanish and I just think how many times does it just not make sense where I don't know where to put the words because the syntax is different and I can see how you know when I think about my family members who um like my my great grandmother was Italian and there were just things that she would say were the way that it would translate like she used to say Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. She had so many different things. She used to say, close the lights because I think there was something that's, that would probably be more of a semantic thing than a syntactic thing, but just the way that it translated over, everybody knew what she was talking about, but it wasn't, you know, again, like it sounded different and you could tell that there was some other influence there with the, what she was processing in her head. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I do the same thing in Spanish still. My English will influence my Spanish. Sometimes I can even hear it coming out and I know that I'm doing it. And then I say like, oh, I got to fix it. But then do I want to fix it? Because that's the same thing syntactically, right? If we keep reformulating, we know that that's also a problem as speech pathologists. So, but yeah, but if you see a kid who's reformulating, that might be why he hears it come out. Oh, it's not quite right. And he's going to try and fix it. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's like, who cares? You know, like you get your message across and it maybe it's the order is a little bit different, but people understand. So that is, uh, yeah, I, that's uh, something that I, I think about a lot. And so with that in mind, there's something else that you talked about with the idea of errors versus influences and making sure that when you're describing what's happening, if you're, let's say, analyzing a language sample or doing a narrative description of the patterns that you see, you want to make sure that you're being culturally sensitive and differentiated when something is being impacted by a language versus calling it an error. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, that just recently, again, we've we've started thinking a little bit more about this um, and how... Basically, when we use that type of language, we're sending the wrong message to, let's say, the IEP team, because if I say that this student has an error on TH and I'm going to do therapy for them, it's a monolingual child, 
And then we have a bilingual child and I say they have an error on TH, but oh, but we're not going to do therapy because that's just an influence. It sort of sends the wrong message to the team because they're hearing error, error. So why aren't you working with this kid on that? Mm -hmm. And so I just encourage people to think about why do we have to use error? Why can't we just flip our language and say, this is a Spanish influenced phoneme that they're using. And we don't have to use the word error because I think it just is when we frame it in that way, the parent, the the child reading it is saying, oh, I, you know, I'm doing something wrong. This is an error when it's really not an error. It's a typical thing that happens when you're learning two languages. Like we were just talking about the um, having the syntax be a little bit different, uh, the word order be a little bit different. It's not an error. It's not a language disorder. It's something that they're doing because they are influenced by the other language. Yeah. So you could even say this is a, could you say it's a substitution? Like in, like this is a Spanish influence substitution of this sound for this sound or something like that, or use the same language if you're describing a syntactic or grammatical pattern. Yeah, so you might just say the following the following syntactical patterns are typical of Spanish influenced English and then just list out the patterns or give some examples of the patterns that you saw um because you're right if you start writing paragraphs it gets really difficult to to keep that language in there um yeah. and not say not say error 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 right so I like to just make a list and say or a chart and say these are Spanish influenced patterns Mm, okay. Yeah. I like the chart thing. I think people get overwhelmed with the narrative, especially when you, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, um, but <laughs> you're, we're not using a nice little neatly scored uh, norm referenced assessment. Usually we're not anyways, or um, that might not be the only thing that we're using if we are using something like that. So that is definitely scary to people. People want a test. So any way that we can format our evaluations to make them more structured is helpful. So you're saying just, you know, kind of do the the, the checklist and list the patterns. Yeah. And I think with these types of evaluations, also, there's a lot going on because we're going to talk about one language, then we're going to talk about the other. We might be talking about three languages. And so it does get very overwhelming. There's a lot of information. And so I think organizing it as much as you can into a chart or into um, some sort of layout that makes it easier for people to understand, because otherwise it does get very wordy. When you're like in Spanish, he or she does this. In English, they do this. In this language, they do this. Um, it's it actually it's that part of it can be very overwhelming when we're mm -hmm. writing reports. Yeah. So bulleted lists are your friend. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to take a quick break here and talk about the ultimate guide to sentence structure. As you're noticing in this conversation, it's really important to be able to study the language of your client when you're doing an evaluation. So that means we have to understand what language patterns to look at, especially when it comes to syntax. Understanding syntax has a huge impact on your ability to process language. And so many times, if you have a student who has issues following directions or using language, it can be tied to syntax. So understanding what syntactic skills are important to address can be crucial. That's why I created the ultimate guide to sentence structure. 
In this guide, I walk through the sentence types that are commonly a challenge for people who are learning English or for people who have disabilities that impact their ability to learn language. So when you address these sentence types, you can make a significant impact on your client's ability to process language. So it's really important to understand what those sentence types are, as well as how to address them. And that's what I do in the guide. So to download your free copy of the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure, you're going to want to go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Okay, so I wanted to talk about just at a high level what a multilingual evaluation would look like because typically the question I get is what test should I do? And my answer is usually it's not really a test, it's a process or a protocol that involves pulling multiple sources of information. I think the term that you used was converging evidence. Would you say that that's yeah. kind of a synonymous thing where we're pulling multiple things from multiple places? So can you talk a little bit about what that would look like, what the different things that you would use to collect information? And then I think what people would then want to know is, and what I like where, where a lot of their head, heads go as far as concerns is how do I communicate this to my uh, my school team or my whatever multidisciplinary team that they're working with to show if I don't have that score that makes us all feel safe, you know, like we have a score, it tells us what to do. How do we make the case for whatever it is I'm recommending or make decisions when we don't have those formal scores? So yeah, I guess we can start with the process first. <laughs> okay. So uh, like you said, um, multiple sources of information or converging evidence, those are, yeah, those terms are synonymous. It's basically that we're going to, I think it's kind of exciting. <laughs> we're going to build this case for one way or another, whether they have a difference or they have a disorder. Um, but in order to build this case, you need multiple sources of evidence. And so um, you would start by gathering some background information. So you want to gather background information about the language. So we've talked a lot about languages today, but um, you you have some um, experience with Spanish, but let's say it's German and you don't know anything about German. That's where you would start. You need to know something about German. And I know that that feels overwhelming for a lot of people. Like, how do I find out about German? I don't know anything about German, um, but there's a lot of resources out there. Um, for finding out that information. And it really isn't, it doesn't have to be an extensive search. You're just trying to find out about the things that we've talked about, like syntax and any um, sort of differences that you should be looking for in grammar and, and things like that, the basic structure. Um, you also want to find out about their languages that they're speaking, because sometimes, surprise, they speak three languages and you were thinking it was two, like we talked mm -hmm. about before, right? Um, or maybe you find out uh, that um, they don't really speak the heritage language that much at home. And so uh, you you want to figure out how much they're speaking the language and how many languages they're speaking. Uh, so that's the background information that you would get first. And then we start to talk about what you would collect in your actual evaluation with the child. So um, you want to get some 
information about what they're doing right now. That's what we call static skills. And so we have a lovely language sample, which I know all of us SLPs love doing and analyzing, but this is like, um, but it is such an important tool when we talk about this type of evaluation, because it gives us so much valuable information. So language sampling is a, a important tool in each language. Um, and then we also want to figure out um, what they're doing right now in terms of if you're doing an academic uh, evaluation in a school, then you want to find out how they're doing in their classroom. So interviewing their teachers and figuring out uh, what their academics look like. So maybe you get a portfolio. I know that that these days, there's a lot going on in the schools. And when yeah. I say portfolio, people are like, I'm not getting a portfolio. Uh, I mean, if you if you can get a writing sample, that's yeah. amazing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, uh, we, then we start to think about beyond the static skills, what they're doing right now. Um, what happens if we try to teach them a a new skill? So if we look at some of the skills from the language sample that they weren't able to do, we don't know if it's an error or if it's just an influence of the other language. Um, we can try and teach them that skill and see how they do in a learning task. Uh, you might know that as dynamic assessment, right? So a lot of people have heard of dynamic assessment. We also call that processing dependent tasks where we're teaching them a skill and seeing if they can learn. Um, oh, sorry. That's actually not processing dependent task. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. That's assessing their learning potential. The processing dependent tasks would be um, things like non-word repetition, so that's also another tool that we can use. Um, but yeah, see, look, even I get, get confused in this process. There's so much <laughs> to yeah. remember. And even, um, so those things, there's there's protocols and there's some structure to them, but you don't they don't necessarily give you a score. So they're, you know, and I've, I've heard people try to uh, split it up like formal, informal, standardized, non-standardized, um, or what's the other one? Qualitative, quantitative. And to me, all of those things are different. I don't really like formal, informal, because it's vague, Ah. but I think standardized versus non-standardized, because something can be structured and quantitative, but not standardized. And then qualitative, quantitative, to me, that's overlaps with standardized, non-standardized, but but is not the same thing. You know, what's interesting about what you just said is that a lot of people don't like saying formal, informal, um, because informal sort of implies that it's not as important. Yeah. So, or it doesn't carry as much weight. And so when we're talking about an evaluation like this, a lot of it is informal, quote unquote. Um, but it, it, this is what we have for tools and this is what we need to use. And I think it does sort of send the wrong message to people that these, like informal measures are somehow less than, but if we take them all together, it's actually, we can get a lot of good information, even though we don't have that norm reference score. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can actually, for the language samples, there are some norm referenced um, information that you can get through SALT for, uh, at least for Spanish. There may be another language as well. I can't remember off the top of my head what other languages, but you can do a little bit of comparison with the norms, at least through SALT. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a little bit of information, but again, that's why we talk about converging evidence because each of these tools taken separately 
don't do an amazing job by themselves, but when we put them all together, we can get a lot of good information and start to differentiate between what it, what is a, a difference and what is a disorder. Yeah. I mean, even if you are like, even if you are going to use a norm-referenced assessment, I, I like that idea of converging evidence there, because even if that is part of an evaluation, that is one piece of evidence that has some benefits to it. It has the score, it has the reliability and, you know, all of those psychometric properties, but then it doesn't necessarily give the rich description. And then it it might have some sensitivity and specificity and other biases. But then when you use that in conjunction with these other things that don't have the benefits of the reliability and validity, but they give you more information when you use them together, you kind of cover your bases. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think even when I'm doing a monolingual evaluation with yeah. an English only, I now use all of these tools still. Um, and people might think that I'm crazy. How do you have that much time to do it? It's so valuable. Um, and when I get a kid who's on the cusp where their score is kind of hanging out there in that that, that range, that's is it average? Is it not average? Well, I have all of these other tools to tell me so I can say definitively yeah, I'm very sure that this is my answer. And I think that not enough people utilize these other tools. And I'm hoping that maybe as people start to do more of these evaluations where they're using these tools, they see the value in the tools and they start to use them in other contexts as well. Have you used this? What uh, what settings have you used this in? Schools or outpatient or like, where are you doing this? Yeah, so mostly in the schools because Because of IDEA, this is where most of the requests come from, right? Because Mm -hmm. IDEA says that we have to assess in in each of their languages. Um, And so we have a law that's really driving bilingual SLPs to be working in schools. But I have worked in other contexts as well in private practice where we're doing these types of evaluations. And that's a really interesting thing that you bring up because in private practice, sometimes we're really limited with our time, right? 45 minutes for an evaluation. Um, So this type of evaluation is really hard in 45 minutes and you have to sort of prioritize what you're going to do. Um, If you have 45 minutes, 50 minutes or an hour, um, how are you going to do that and still get that converging evidence? It's possible, but you really have to plan out what what tools you're going to use to answer that question. You're basically answering only the question of, is it a difference or a disorder? And you're not going to dive in as deep into strengths and weaknesses yet or anything like that, because you just want to answer that question of difference versus disorder. Do people typically, when they're doing that, do they typically bill the whole thing as an eval when they're doing it in private practice versus saying, because I've seen people and I don't even know what this I've seen this done in other other contexts where people are like, yeah, that was my eval. It was 45 minutes, but I'm still doing yep. my eval, even though they're putting the code for therapy on their form. That's what we do. Yeah. Okay. So then that's sort of what you do, right? So you call it a diagnostic treatment session mm-hmm. after that, where you continue to sort of look at strengths and weaknesses uh, in those following sessions, because it's impossible to yeah. get all of the information that you need in a 45 minute session, basically. Yeah. And that's yeah. in the schools, obviously that would be hard as well, but at least you could 
you don't have the scheduling and the billing to worry about. Well, you have the scheduling, but you, it's not the yeah. same as a medical setting where you're you're thinking about insurance. So it's right. a different. You, in the schools, you have a lot more choice as to how you're going to use your time. You might be sacrificing something else while you spend more yeah. time doing And I do know that these evaluations, a lot of school-based SLPs will look at this and say, impossible. There's no way. I don't have enough time. But what I encourage people to think about is that if you incorrectly put this kid on your caseload, that's going to cost you a lot more time than the three hours it took you to do this evaluation or the two and a half hours it took you to do this evaluation, right? Because they're going to stay on your caseload for a long time after that. Is it two hours? Is that just direct time to administer? That's not report writing time? Or I mean, what is a typical time frame for that? It depends on the age, really, and how much they're speaking each language. But if they're truly bilingual, and you need to test them in both languages, uh, it's a little bit less for a preschooler. But for an elementary, middle or high schooler, I mean, it can take me several hours. Um, And I usually try and do it over several different days so that I can plan and think about that learning task that we were the dynamic assessment task uh, that we were talking about so that I can plan it out ahead of time. And then we do that together on a different day. Um, But it does take several hours and the writing also, Mm -hmm. um, I touched on that a little bit before it's complicated as well because you're talking about two different languages. And so it does take longer than it would for a regular English only evaluation. I'd imagine that having a good process and format would be very, uh, very useful in that context. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I actually map it out (laughs) before I start. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, for a while, almost the only thing that I was doing is evaluations, bilingual evaluations, multilingual evaluations. And I got really fast at it, but it was basically just graphic organizer for myself uh, before I started of the language A, language B, strengths and weaknesses, syntax, morphology, um, and really mapping out uh, where they were at in each of their languages. And the writing goes a lot faster if you can organize yourself ahead of time, which as an executive functioning person, you you probably appreciate. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I, I could see how that could be so useful for so many different things. and. So for anybody who is responsible for evaluations, this could be something you do for any language evaluation in one language. So it's, it, you know, it, it sounds like you're saying there's hope. <laughs> cut there's it down hope. when we have a good process for, for writing the evals. Right. Exactly. Can we, let's cycle back to the, the concept of learning potential versus processing dependent tasks. So what is an example of a, how a processing dependent task could look like, what are you physically doing with a child when you're doing something like that? Yeah. So essentially this is very interesting because essentially what they found is uh, processing dependent tasks like non-word repetition. So basically repeating non-words made up words um, is a pretty good measure. Not great. Again, unfortunately not amazing, Uh, But it's a pretty good measure of figuring out a language disorder versus just a difference. Um, So there are uh, and there's a lot more research that is recently coming out on this in different languages. Um, And there are some 
non-word repetition tasks that are available, the Leaders Project, um, which is a website, has some processing dependent tasks, the non-word repetition tasks available for free. Um, And you can use those as another, like yet another piece of evidence to figure out if they're good at repeating non-words or not, basically. So if, what will you see if they, um, what are you actually looking for? So if they're not good at that task, that means that, that, I mean, that, that there is an issue versus what, can you clarify what what we're looking for there? <laughs> yeah, so you're basically just looking at if I give you this gobbledygook word <laughs> that is in your language, because you have to also remember that um, we have phono, uh, we have these phonological constraints on words too, according to our language, and so um, basically meaning that. Uh, these two consonants either belong together or not in my language. And so we make words that are non-words for your language, for English or for Spanish or for German or for Portuguese. And they're they're the same format um, as, as words in that language, um, but they're not real words. And so you're essentially, if you think about it, it's kind of like, learning a new word and being Mm -hmm. able to hear that new word and repeat that new word. So it's, it's taxing a lot of your system in terms of your phonology and your ability to recall and sequence the sounds and come out with that word in the exact same word, same way Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that the speaker modeled for you. So it's really interesting to look at, but basically what you're looking at is if someone hears that word, and they can't repeat it, or the the um, phonology doesn't come out quite the same. The the sounds are are different, or a lot of times you'll get to they can do the CVC words, the consonant vowel consonant words, but as soon as you get to more multisyllabic words, they just can't sequence it. It doesn't come out the same, um, and it just for whatever reason, it's just a good clinical marker of language disorder. Um, it's even a good clinical marker for English only kids as well. But like I said, it's not amazing and excellent in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Uh, So you still, it's only one, one piece of evidence. So in theory, if you can hear a nonsense word and immediately create a phonological representation and repeat it, that means that you have some of those, those skills, but if you can't, it could be more indicative that there is an actual language disorder there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's what's so interesting with this reminds me of how when you are doing sentence repetition tasks, a lot of times people think, well, you're telling them the sentence and then they're repeating it back. You're telling them the answer. And it's no, if they don't have that <laughs> syntactic pattern. They're not going to repeat it back because it's not going to make sense going in. And so that actually is a measure of syntax. And when we're thinking about the language versus executive functioning thing, the high level processing is so important, but if you don't have the language, how are you going to support the self-talk required to, you know, talk yourself through all of these steps? And so that's why it's like, yes, you have to kind of work on both of them simultaneously, but you still have to work on those language skills to support those things. So is it the same with learning potential when you are teaching? Is that something else where it's the same kind of thing where if you teach them something and they can learn it quickly, it's more likely that they, that it is a difference versus a disorder. 
Right. Exactly. So what happens with kids who maybe um, are, so what you're looking for really is the differences or even that maybe they're experiencing what's called language loss, where they've had some language skills, but they've lost them because of their exposure. Mm -hmm. Typically with either one of those situations, if you teach them the skill, whatever it is, if it's a a syntactical element that you're teaching, so like a sentence structure element, or if it's a grammatical structure that you're teaching them, we know that if you don't have a language disorder, you should be able to pick up on it. If I give you, Mm -hmm. it's it's essentially just doing speech therapy with them for about a half hour. And you're using all those speech therapy techniques that you have. You can also really do the same thing with other things as well. Like let's say that you're a special educator or you're a psychologist and you're, you're wanting to see if they have uh, a skill, you can teach them math, a math skill or a reading skill and see if they can acquire it. Because really, if you're, um, if that center of your brain is intact, it will work and you will understand and you will get that skill and you'll learn it very quickly. And that's why RTI or MTSS, that's a form of, of assessing learning potential because mm-hmm. we're providing them that instruction and then we're seeing how they respond to it. It's the same thing with dynamic assessment uh, or any of the other learning potential tasks. We're just providing them with really intensive instruction and seeing how they respond to it. If you have a disability, then you're going to be different. <laughs> you're not going to be able to respond quickly. And that's why when we do speech therapy with someone or when we have someone who's in special education, they don't just get it and graduate and move on. It takes a long time and there then there are new things to work on. And so in that little snapshot of a half hour or during the time that they're in RTI, response to intervention, we should see if there's not a disorder, we should see a lot of growth. We should see them getting that skill. And if they're not getting that skill and there's not a lot of growth, then that's there's high potential that that's an indication that they have a disability, they have a disorder. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I think that that would be something that since districts already are on board with RTI that people doing evaluations could use to take to their their team, when their team is saying, no, no, you need the score, it's well, but that's not what we're necessarily using to evaluate kids for, you know, if they have a learning disability, we're using these other measures, we're using their response to this intervention over here, versus thinking of your evaluation as a mini RTI. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, you had asked about the scores before, and it's very common that we have administrators say, yes, but this is a great report, Meg, but there's no scores in here. And so we can't use it. And I'm sorry. Um, And the problem with the scores is that the scores are really riddled with bias, right? So there are lots of different biases in these assessment tools that we're using, especially when you talk about, for us as speech pathologists, and we're looking at language, those language tests are looking at standard American English. And that is how they have developed the entire test. And the problem is that when we take those tests that were developed for standard American English and we just translate them into Spanish. So let's say we had the self-English and now the self-Spanish. There are lots of problems because we didn't actually create the test for that population and for that language so, um, I mean, I understand that it, it is a really tough conversation to have with administrators, but 
it's a conversation that needs to be had that this tool doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't tell us a score that it, that is at all meaningful to us. Yeah. And all of these other things that we talked about today, this converging evidence is much more valuable than anything that the test is going to tell us. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it from the learning potential, when you're just giving them the test, you haven't even done the task to see if they have the learning potential. They haven't even had that opportunity. You're just asking them a question and that's, you know, (laughs) that's where they are in the moment and they haven't had an opportunity to learn whatever it is. Well, so I know we've been talking for a while and I have, oh man, we could keep going. (laughs) We haven't even talked about interpreters yet. So what I'm going to do now and and language samples, um, where are places that people can go to get information about working with interpreters or doing language sample analysis or really any of the other things that you have talked about today? Where can people get more information? So I think that there's a lot of really great information that's available and out there. And I think that some of the major places that I would send people to are um, bilinguistics.com. They have a lot of information, a lot of resources, and a lot of that, um, that those tools are available uh, at no cost. Um, Leaders Project also, leadersproject.com is another initiative where everything on there is also uh, available for free, I believe. And uh, they have some tools for dynamic assessment. They have the non-word repetition task that we talked about today. Um, And then we did touch a little bit on language sampling and talking about SALT. And of course, that's something that you would have to purchase, but it is another tool um, and that you could use. And it has some information for other languages. Um, And there are some elicitation, um, some different things for elicitation of language samples on SALT uh, on the website. And uh, there are scripts, there are audio in different languages that you could use for eliciting language samples. Um, Yeah, so there there is quite a bit of information out there. Um, Yeah, and I'm happy to share my information if there are other things, other specific questions that people have about gathering some of of the yeah. things talked about <laughs> bilinguistics leaders Pro- leadership project and leaders project. <laughs> leaders project and salt so we will link to those in the show notes so where can people go to connect with you or see some of the presentations that you've given yeah so um i have uh, the speechpathology.com presentation that you talked about um, I also presented for ASHA Connect this past uh, year, but I don't think that you that that's available, uh, but it's essentially the same presentation as yeah. speechpathology.com. Um, and then I, I am on LinkedIn and happy to connect with anyone through LinkedIn and happy to answer any other questions people have around this topic. I love talking about it. If you if you can't tell, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so helpful and so so many different tangible examples of ways that people can make decisions without having to resort to just you know using the standard score which we know that that is just the tip of the iceberg if that <laughs> yeah an iceberg is a really good example for this for this yeah. context for sure yeah well thank you so much for being here with me today Yeah, thank you for having me. It's so much fun to chat about this. 
Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check out the show notes for all of the fantastic resources that Meg mentioned in this episode. And also be sure to connect with her on LinkedIn if you want to learn more about the presentations that she's given or just want to connect with her. Also, don't forget to check out the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure and the Executive Functioning Implementation Guide. The Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure will outline some of the key sentence types that commonly create challenges for people who are learning English, whether it be because of a disability or whether it because they just need to learn English. So to download your free copy of that guide, you're going to want to go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. And then if you want to learn how you can be more efficient with how you serve your caseload, because evals like this take a lot of your time, you need to know how to take your clinical expertise and spread it throughout your building so that your students can get support when they leave your therapy room because you only have so much time for direct therapy. Imagine how powerful it could be for you to train other people to support students once they leave your therapy room so that students can get support across the day. That is why I created the Executive Functioning Implementation Guide. Executive functioning skills are really the glue that holds everything together so that students can apply skills across settings. They are also skills that help to build resiliency, support mental health, and really can amplify any other direct skill area that you're working on. And of course, in order to be able to get executive functioning support, Implemented in the school systems, we need to understand what everyone's role is, and that is what I outline in the guide. So to download your free copy of that guide, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash efschools. Again, that's drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash efschools. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you that it helps me out so much if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, if you want to connect with me, if you have a suggestion for a guest on the show, if you would like to be a guest on the show, or if you would like information about professional development opportunities and want me to come speak to your group, definitely reach out to me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Now we'll wrap up, but thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. 
When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.